vice presidency is a mostly symbolic job. Uh -huh. However, if we came to a uh, different understanding, I can handle the more mundane jobs, overseeing bureaucracy, military, energy, and uh, foreign policy. Yeah, right. I like that. That's a scene from the movie Vice, the new biopic about former Vice President Dick Cheney that this week picked up eight Oscar nominations, including one for Best Picture, Best Actor for the performance by Christian Bale, and Best Director and Screenplay for the man behind the movie, Adam McKay. The film is a look back at an era long before Donald Trump, when Cheney, perhaps the most powerful vice president in U.S. history, took over much of the U.S. government, distorting intelligence about weapons of mass destruction in order to push the country into war in Iraq, getting approval for waterboarding and other enhanced interrogation techniques that amounted to torture, and helping to dramatically expand the boundaries of executive power unchecked by Congress. While we all obsess over the Russia scandal and the thuggish behavior of Trump and his minions, it is worth remembering that not too long ago, there were other grave threats to American democracy. What lessons can we learn from that period that can guide us through today's crises? We'll discuss with the man who conceived and created Vice, Adam McKay, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isgov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So look, I am really jazzed about getting Adam McKay for Skullduggery. I think he's our first Oscar nominee on this podcast. Skullduggery goes Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, the first of many. First, there's a lot we got to deal with on the Mueller investigation, Trump and Russia. We're going to have our colleague John Alter in a minute talking about all this. Just one thing, just for starters, these claims about witness intimidation that Lanny Davis, Michael Cohen's advisor, had put out there just this week. I don't know. It seems, look, there's no question we got thuggish behavior by Trump and, uh, and Giuliani bringing up Cohen's father-in-law. But the point that I think is important to keep in mind here is Cohen has already Given his story, he spent 70 hours with Mueller and the Southern District. His testimony, his account is locked in. The U.S. government, the Justice Department knows what it is already. I totally agree. It's outrageous behavior. It's not normal behavior by a president. But I really doubt that prosecutors could bring any kind of witness tampering case against Donald Trump or even really make it this specific allegation a part of an impeachment proceeding. It could possibly be part of a larger kind of pattern right. of obstruction, but not witness tampering per se. I mean, for one thing, you have to prove corrupt intent. You have to prove that 
I don't that think that's the hard part. Well, but I mean, no, you're... but you have to pr- prove yeah. that what you're doing is attempting to obstruct an official proceeding, to your right. point about you know these things that have already taken place. Right. And look, Donald Trump can always say, I'm tweeting to the world, I'm tweeting to the American public and to voters because I'm trying to influence them. That's what I do. I'm a politician. So there's no case here in my mind. And I think we're sort of hyperventilating about it. Right. But that doesn't mean there isn't a lot to get to and we should get right to it. And now to help us dissect the latest developments in the Mueller investigation, the BuzzFeed story, Michael Cohen's upcoming testimony, and all related matters, our old friend and colleague, John Alter. John, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And I should should mention, and we'll talk about this later, John is also the co-director of Deadline Artists, a fabulous HBO movie that will be airing this it, upcoming uh, Monday? The 28th of January. It's 28th. a documentary. airs at 8 p.m. on Monday the 28th on uh, HBO. One day, oh. Isakoff, they'll be well, doing a documentary well, about you, and, about an ex- yeah. extinct brand of journalism yeah. that you represent. Extinct, it's, extinct. It's extinct. Extinct. Yeah, we should say this is about two legendary New York uh, newspaper columnists, Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill. It's a fascinating deep dive into what real newspaper journalism is all about, something we should all remember. We'll talk about that soon enough. But, John, you know, It's been a really remarkable week on developments on the Trump-Russia story. We had the BuzzFeed story basically alleging that Mueller has evidence that amounts to an impeachable offense, that the president directed Michael Cohen to lie about the Trump Tower Moscow deal that riled everybody up. Democrats were tweeting, making public statements. This is an impeachable offense. Uh, We need to aggressively act on this. Then Mueller seems to shoot it down, saying the story is, quote, not accurate. Your take on the developments of the last week? Well, even though it is an impeachable offense to suborn perjury, to encourage people to lie, I was skeptical when I first read the BuzzFeed story for this reason. I think this crowd lies like they breathe. And you don't have to say to somebody, hey, Mike, take a breath. Yeah. This is what they do. This is what they and do. What they're so, so Michael they Cohen did not have to be directed by the he, president. Of course it's he didn't implicit. have to be directed by the president. Every word out of Trump's mouth, every other word is a lie. And they've been cataloged. And Michael Cohen, if you look back at what he said uh, before he he flipped, most of what he said was also a lie. Right. So, you know, it reminds me of there was a, um, a foreign policy expert in the uh, 1970s named Helmut Sonnenfeld. And he so was this asked, is why we like to have John on for uh, these obscure Okay, all right, but wait a second. References. I was in a carpool driven by Helmut Sonnenfeld to Georgetown Whoa. Day School in no Chevy Chase, way. Maryland. That is a true no story. Wow. That is a true story. Okay, so That's I why got... we we here on Skullduggery speak with authority. <laughs> well, I, I, I've got no Helmut Sonnenfeld <laughs> well, stories to share. So uh, I didn't ever know Helmut Sonnenfeld, but in an article I wrote, yeah. like, in, you know, 30 well, years ago, he had a famous quote about Henry Kissinger, and he said, Henry doesn't lie because it's in his interest. He lies because it's in his nature. Right. And lying is in the nature of these clownish thugs, all of them, the mm-hmm. whole bunch of them. 
And I think that's the way history will regard all of them. So I don't think that he had to be told to oh. lie. I think he knew to lie. But I also okay, think- that's a but that's a John. That's a commentary on Cohen and this whole group. You were also a media columnist for Newsweek. So what did you think of the BuzzFeed story? You know, I just didn't think it was substantiated enough. I think it was really conspicuous that like the Prague story that was in McClatch that we'll talk about, Mm -hmm. that it wasn't matched. Now, sometimes when a story is not matched, it's because people are jealous. They just can't get the story. Somebody's ahead. But not a story of this import. Yeah. And something like this, you would think that somebody could have matched it. And the more we learned about it, the less direct it was. I thought it was interesting that Mueller's office issued this statement, and I think the reason they did is that unlike some of the other stories that came out that might have been erroneous, this one led to a feeding frenzy on impeachment. And so you were talking about possibly major political effects from this story, whereas the other ones were just pieces of journalism that created a lot of noise and that weren't really going to change the trajectory of the story. This one threatened to do that. But I've also never thought that the timing of the Moscow Tower deal was that central. So to me, I I disagree with you there. I think it is central because it was taking place during the campaign. He was trying to secure a business deal with the Kremlin's approval while he's running for president. As the nominee, not just. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying that it would be. Uh, one of the uh, you know possible articles of impeachment. But to me, the core of the story here is a quid pro quo, and that only takes us part of the way possibly to the story. So the core of the Mueller investigation is not obstruction of justice. It's not perjury. It's whether there was the mother of all corrupt deals, right. which is not – collusion is not a legal term – a, cons- a criminal conspiracy. We already know that on the Russian side, Mueller has concluded that criminal activity took place. Right. So if you look at the instructions that judges give juries in conspiracy mm-hmm. cases, it can be spoken or unspoken agreement to a conspiracy. And what was the quid pro quo? It was the Russians will help Trump get elected, and in exchange – he will lift sanctions, deal with the Magnitsky Act, change the platform, change the platform. in Cleveland. Right. right. So right. this this is w- the would, basic, would be would that be. would be that the quote would be that's right. that's the ultimate, I think, of what they're looking for. And I think there's a lot of smoke to suggest that that did happen. The Moscow Tower deal will be sort of part of that, maybe, you know. Yeah. But I don't think that either in the current political context, either perjury or obstruction of justice. This is. Really sad to say, I don't think either of them will get Trump out of office. But a conspiracy with the Russians, which is what collusion means, yeah. he'll be gone. Although well, the Republicans will be. You got to remember George in Watergate, George Bush, head of the Republican Party, Barry Goldwater, all these guys. It took them until the summer of. 1974, two years. Right. Before that, they're all saying, oh, Nixon, oh, it's, it's a witch hunt, you know. And it took a smoke, the smoking gun to come out, the, right. you know, the existence yeah. of Watergate right. tapes. Right. I, I right. should say, you say two years. Look, that's shorter than it's taken in this case for any final conclusion on this because, we, you know, in June of 1972, 
you know, the Watergate burglars broke into the DNC. In June of 2016, we learned that the Russians had broken into the DNC and That's stolen documents. And, and in but, July, we learned that the Republican platform had been right. doctored. And I was amazed at that convention, at that Cleveland convention, right. that that wasn't so more the only time, story at the convention. I was wondering, like, what the hell's going on from, here? This from the moment story. of the discovery of the crime... More time has gone on well, in look, this case a than took place in Watergate. But there's a fundamental—I right. mean, it's an interesting analogy. There's a right. fundamental difference here yeah. was that in you know, Watergate, the crime was committed by people close to the, to the White House, close to, to the campaign, working for the working re-election for the committee. committee. They were working for the re-election You know, in the case of June 2016, yeah. it was done by the Russians, and right. we had to establish a link between the Russians right. and the— right. So that's right. a big— Well, I want, to make, I want to make two points. First of all, on the BuzzFeed story, you say the, the story wasn't substantiated all that much. It wasn't substantiated at all. It all right. starts with this lead, Trump directed Cohen to lie, but then it never backs it up with when. How? Right, right, what did he say? Right. Yeah, well, you, How was it communicated? If you had filed that right. story, you wouldn't have I mean, published like, it. Right? Okay. Right. And then, well, what do the emails say? What, yeah, are, yeah. what text it's messages? Backed up by what are the dates? Tells, tells us nothing. You know. And I got to say, you know, there were people trying to do backflips saying that well, Mueller's statement was parsing. ambiguous and it no, doesn't really ambiguous. go to the core the of the story. Statement wasn't ambiguous. Read, no, read, no. Read the, yeah, yeah. I've got the statement right here. Buzzfeed's description of specific statements to the special counsel's office and characterization of documents documents and testimony obtained by this office regarding Michael Cohen's congressional testimony are not accurate. Now, that is the story. The story alleged, claimed that Cohen had told the special counsel that Trump had directed him to lie and that it was backed up by documents and emails. So it's all know, encompassing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, pretty you know, much encompasses testimony the whole thing. that encompasses Cohen's testimony to the Mueller team. Right. I don't see how you parse that language. Right. But look, I'm on a tear about another aspect of this, but very much related, which is the idea that Congress is not going to demand, or at least so far demand, that Michael Cohen testify in public, under oath, about every aspect of this without regard to what impact it has on the Mueller investigation. Because at this point, Congress has a constitutional responsibility to get the facts. Yeah. It has outsourced its investigative responsibilities to an executive branch official, which raises constitutional questions on its own. They're not doing their job. In Watergate, Sam Irvin did not ask Archibald Cox permission to hold the Senate Watergate hearings. Peter Rudino did not ask Leon Jaworski's permission to hold impeachment hearings. And nobody batted an eye because everybody assumed that when you have serious questions about the president's conduct, it's Congress's job to ferret out the facts on its own and act accordingly if the facts require that. And we've had more than two years now since the House and Senate Intelligence Committees announced they were going to be investigating any links between the Trump campaign and Russia. We have not had a single public 
hearing with a fact witness to date, more than two years into this. Yeah, the testimony why. that they've taken was all behind closed doors. Donald Trump Jr., yeah, Jared yeah. Kushner, Michael Cohen himself, that, we still have not seen it. That era, it, that era's over. Well, we've just learned that Cohen, who backed out of testifying before the House Oversight Committee, has now been subpoenaed to testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee in mid-February, but no word on whether that's going to be public. And I should point out that Senator Burr, the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, basically doesn't believe in public hearings in this investigation. He hasn't had a single one yet. I'm not as pessimistic as you are. So just to give a little bit of background, the reason that this whole idea of polluting an ongoing Justice Department or special prosecutor investigation, it goes back to the Iran-Contra. Yes. Very uh, different circumstances. Which I I covered. I was in the Senate caucus room when Oliver North was testifying. And at that time, they were worried that Lawrence Walsh's investigation, he was the the Mueller of his day, special prosecutor, would be compromised, even corrupted by— The testimony would be tainted. It would be tainted, and that they wouldn't be able to get the indictments that they need. So ever since that point, there's been this— you know, reluctance. But I don't think... But very different circumstances. Adam Schiff buys Excuse this. Me. Well, yeah, first of all, he? Adam Schiff said it, it, right off the bat and when Cummings announced this two weeks ago that he was going to call Cohen behind closed doors. This is just days after he said we're going to have a new era of transparency in the House Intelligence Committee on these matters. And the first thing he says is, I'm going to take behind closed doors testimony. So, yes, until we hear from Schiff otherwise, I'll just take him at his word that he's continuing the secret Around well, this. I, I but, agree but with you I, being. I didn't realize that yeah. he had said that because he said a series of different things. He's talked about transparency, openness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and then he's the going to do. Said, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's wrong. But all right, there, okay. but there is yeah. a really important difference between yes. uh, the Iran Contra mm-hmm. scenario and what's happening now. Remember, we used to talk about limited use immunity. Yeah, that was the yeah. term. So North was testifying r- under r- immunity. Right, Poindexter right. testified right, right. under immunity. That's what complicates criminal investigations. None of that is applies here. Nobody's talking about giving Cohn immunity. He's already testified. Right. His testimony is locked in. He's been sentenced. There's no so way. So if he pleads the fifth, what happens? Well, why would he plead the fifth? Well, they well, say he's already Manny testified. Davis is saying they're not. He's not going to talk. No. Well, yes. Why is Lanny Davis saying that? I don't know. I don't think yeah. he can. He can't plead the fifth if he's already testified he's, he's on this stuff. Testified. I mean, he's, he's waived. So he's waived. He doesn't hasn't he waived that privilege at well, least to, to the things well, that he's already testified about? They need to tell. We, See, the thing that people don't quite understand, I think, is that okay, it's the end of January. These guys have been there for less than a month. They've been out of power for a long time. Right since since 2011, since early 2011, yeah. it's a long time for all of their their Democrats' muscles to atrophy, investigative muscles to atrophy. When you're in the minority, the majority completely screws you. Mm -hmm. And so they're not staffed up yet. You know, they have a lot of positions to fill. They're just filling them right now. Their lawyers on these committees are just getting up to speed. So, you know, it's like people ask me about Trump's taxes. And I said last fall, categorically, we will all see his taxes by, you know, next spring, because I knew it would take, I think I would, at first I said February, then I realized they won't be quite staffed up and ready, but one chamber of Congress under the law has the authority to get somebody's taxes and make them public. We well, will, that, that will could be, be a legal. well, that we will be litigated. All, it'll be it will litigated. Take time. That's why it'll take time. That's, but I think it'll be on an expedited basis. I think now 
that we'll see his taxes by April or May. And we will see, I, I'm 100% certain that we right. will all see Donald Trump's taxes. Right. Um, because there's a lot of pressure on the Democrats for this kind of transparency. I'm disturbed that Schiff said this about uh, wanting to be I'll, an executive I'll, I'll session. I'll show you the statement and, and, he made right and, after that. And, 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 you know, it might be that they're not, this is a guess, they're not quite ready for those public hearings. Again, remember, the mm-hmm. people that he has now working on the majority staff, they've been in their jobs for like five days, you know, and... No, but they, they, these guys have been around, but no, the staff no. has what been they, around. What do you mean they've well, been they, around? They were in the minority. It's not like they, they, but they were... They didn't, but, but they, ha- you know, they were in the minority, but they were not given access to all kinds of documents. I mean, there were a lot of stories about they were flying completely blind. So now they finally have the arrows to Toyland, and they're just kind of getting started on this huge, huge amount of material to get their arms around Well, look, Schiff Schiff Uh, and his staff has been, you know, have been part of this investigation from the get-go. They didn't have the power to subpoena, but they certainly had access to the testimony. Every turn. Yes, but they had access to the testimony. They know where it was. Anyway, I think we're going to get Michael Cohen's testimony eventually. I don't don't think it should be eventually. I think we need to hear it now because you've had a series of questionable media stories, but serious allegations raised about, you know, whether Michael Cohen flew to Prague to meet with Russian agents during the campaign to pay off hackers. That was the McClatchy story, which you've written about. There was the uh, CNN story that Michael Cohen had information that Trump was aware of the Trump Tower meeting in real time in June. Which Lanny Davis then had to walk back. Which Lanny Davis walked back, but CNN has still stood behind. And now you have the BuzzFeed story. These are serious allegations of misconduct. Cohen can clear them up in one session, in one hearing, asked directly, did you know about the Trump Tower meeting? Did you discuss it with the president? What did the president say? Did you fly to Prague? Did you meet with any Russian agents during the campaign? You know, did the president tell you to lie? I mean, we can get answers, and we shouldn't have to scared. He's scared. I mean, my family's at risk. I mean, I understand it a little bit because you have a president of the United States attacking his father-in-law. You know, this is just... Uh, nobody's that, defending that was Trump like, here, but... This was like a, uh, a story that just went flying past everybody in a tweet. Yeah. You know, we've just never seen... Like, Millard Fillmore didn't attack his enemy's father-in-law. We just have... We've never <laughs> wait, wait, seen... Was, was, I mean, we just, that, no what, president... What, what, what okay. was Millard Fillmore? No president I think, I think we've ever... got the title of the podcast <laughs> from Helmut Sonnenfeld to Millard <laughs> yes. uh, no, but, I mean, Fillmore. It's, the it's other important way that, that every day... Some kind of new norm is violated. But having said that, I do think that Michael Cohen is acting like a sort of a whiny, cowering stool pigeon in a mafia case when, oh, my family might be hurt if I testify, which is really, it sort of reminds me of, um, you know, the mafioso who um, dressed up like he was mentally ill, like he wore his pajamas to court. Gelanti? Gigante. Vincent the Chin Gigante. Wearing his pajamas around the village. All right, look. (laughs) A related thing that happened this week involves a character who very well could have been in the movie that we're about to talk about, the Jimmy Breslin movie, Rudy Giuliani. So Giuliani this week to the New York Times and then on Meet the Press said that Trump was in talks about this Moscow Trump Tower deal 
at least until October or November. I think he told the New York Times that quoted Trump saying, from the time I announced until I was elected president. He then tried to walk that back, said his comments were hypothetical, whatever that means. You have been around Giuliani for years. You've yeah. written about him. <laughs> what in the world is going on? What's your theory of what Rudy Giuliani is doing? Um, so a lot of times with Giuliani and with a lot of practice liars, if they say something, it means the exact opposite. So another thing that he said this past week was, I don't care if on my tombstone it says that I was a liar, I'll be dead then, it doesn't matter. That means that he cares passionately, that he doesn't go down in history. He used to be America's mayor, the next president of the United States, Rudy Giuliani. The most embarrassing articles I ever wrote, with one exception, in my whole career were when I was puffing him after 9-11. Because I, I ended up in his pool. I went to ground zero with him a half dozen times. And I you know, wrote two, the pieces were too friendly to Rudy. I wasn't skeptical enough. But the point is that he, I know him well enough to know that he cares desperately that defending Trump's lies not be what he's remembered for. So he is beginning to tell the truth about some things. And Trump is apparently furious. There's a story yesterday that he's furious at Giuliani. And I don't have any knowledge to back this up, but I think that his days as, as Trump's say, mouthpiece might be I was numbered. Say, wouldn't, wouldn't a better way yeah. of getting out of this mess, you know, stopping lying for Trump would be to quit? Yes. And not be his mouthpiece Yes, and anymore? I think that could happen fairly soon. The reason that he went in there in the first place is he loves the limelight. He's always been a complete showboat since he was a young U.S. attorney. And, you know, he's one of these guys, he's an attention whore, a TV addict, right? He was addicted to the limelight, and he went through a few years where you know, his phone wasn't ringing, he wasn't getting booked, and this gave him a way back into the, the show. What was the one exception? <laughs> I've been pretty honest about this. I wrote a piece about six weeks after 9-11 called The Case for Torture, and I was... I remember that. I was actually, mm -hmm. if you read the piece, I said, I'm not advocating physical torture, like just something like what they did in Noriega with <laughs> the loud music, but like, let's find out who yeah. did this 9-11 thing, right? Yeah. And let's... And let's, um, you know, press a little harder. And then I mentioned that in Israel they have torture warrants so that if they do enhanced interrogation, it's under the guise of court supervision. And I just sort of walked through all this. But I was trying to be provocative. And yeah. the headline was time to think about torture, question mark. <laughs> well, and I've been living with it ever since. I oh, mean, it's one of those yeah. things that even though I wrote a long piece saying, you know, it was a bad article, I regret writing it. Yeah. Doesn't matter, you know. It's just a, sort of an easy. Well, thing for I, I, people like, to, that's uh, really fascinating since uh, we're going to have Adam McKay, the director of Vice, about yeah. uh, Dick Cheney on uh, as our next guest on this show. So I, we will be talking about torture. If, and if we had Dick Cheney on the show, I guarantee you he would not make the same mayor culpa <laughs> yeah, that no, no, John no, Alter no. did He's, about uh, very, torture. Very, but I, right. you know, I, I mean, part of it was at the time I wrote it, I knew McCain already. I had gotten to know him a few years yeah. earlier, but I had really interesting conversations with him afterward about how torture just doesn't work. Like, mm -hmm. aside from it being morally wrong, yeah. it just simply, there's no evidence of it working, even though everything in your brain tells you that it would work. Right. It doesn't. People just say anything to stop you from torturing All right. them. Right. All right. Let's we talk want... about this terrific movie about uh, Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill. 
Deadline Artists is the title. It's called Breslin and Hamill Deadline Artists. Okay, all right. Write it down, folks. January 28th on HBO. How did you come to make this movie? So more than three years ago, I had been out of touch with Jimmy Breslin for a while. I had known him. I had met him in in the 80s uh, in in the movie. Um, at one point, I count how when I was Newsweek's media critic and I was writing a, a sort of tough piece about Breslin, my phone rings at Newsweek on deadline, and I, I pick up the phone, and all I hear is, Alter, you fuck with me, I'll fuck you good, because I'm the fucking John Gotti of journalism. Never fucking forget it. He slams down the phone, which is kind of a memorable, you know, occasion for a young reporter. So, And then after, after that, we became friends, because yeah. he liked the fact that I was standing up to him a little bit. And in 2015, I hadn't talked to him in a couple of years, maybe three years, and I ran into his stepdaughter, she said that he was ailing, probably wasn't going to be alive that much longer. I said, has anybody just gone around, you know, with a camera to f- get the great stories about the old days? And he said, people have tried. She said, people have tried, but they haven't really gotten it done. So I got together with a couple of friends who I, Steve McCarthy, who I'd done a bunch of pieces for NBC News with, and John Block, who was a former Dateline producer. And we just, without really knowing where it was going to go, we just took a camera over to Jimmy's apartment and we picked up Pete Hamill because we thought it would sort of enrich the thing to have Pete, who's a wonderful talker and a good friend of Jimmy's, but a very different style, more of a kind of soulful poet. Someone, I saw some piece uh, where they referred to Hamill as a poet and Breslin as a howitzer. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was good. That was one of the uh, very nice reviews and uh, pieces about this, this film. So we just started talking to them. And then it turned out that pretty much everybody that we wanted to interview, really well-known people like Robert De Niro, Spike Lee, Gloria Steinem, Shirley MacLaine, who had been uh, mm-hmm. Pete's girlfriend when he was simultaneously going out with Jackie. Jackie Onassis, that and, was interesting. Um, and they all were willing to talk and because Breslin and Hamill had cut such a wide swath right. through American journalism. The only people who wouldn't talk were Son of Sam, David Berkowitz, who wrote me a polite letter declining. Really? Sirhan, Sirhan. They were the only ones. Everybody else talked. After a while, we realized we sort of have something interesting here. There was a huge amount of archival material. The archival footage is fabulous. The most dangerous place to be was between Jimmy Breslin and a camera for 30 years in New York. So then I I took it to Richard Plepler, the president of HBO, and he just bought it on the spot. He he loved it from from the beginning. We've got a clip. There's so many great stories in this documentary, uh, stories about the columns these guys did. But my favorite is one in this clip, which is right after the assassination of John Kennedy. And I believe we have the clip. Polly, could you please be here by 11 o'clock this morning? Kowalczyk asked. I guess you know what it's for. Pollard did. He hung up the phone, finished breakfast, and left his apartment so he could spend Sunday digging a grave for John Fitzgerald Kennedy. That is the voice of Jimmy Breslin talking it's about... It's actually not the voice of Jimmy Right, Breslin. yeah, because because <laughs> Breslin had died, but you had we somebody had a wonderful who actually... Michael Rispoli. Who had was, it to the T. He played right. Tony Soprano's father on the flashback right. episodes of The Soprano. Okay. He, he, He's he, in the, the deuce. The voice is T. And it's about the column that, uh, that Jimmy Breslin did the day of the funeral of John F. Kennedy in which he finds the grave digger, the guy who's going to dig the grave for the 
the president and talk about just somebody's genius in finding just the right story that nobody else is going to write, nobody else is going to cover. And right. Jerry Breslin did it. That story, The Gravedigger, it's the actual title of the piece was Why It's an Honor, is probably the best known, most widely reprinted column of the 20th century. Uh, It's used in most journalism schools because the lesson, which this part was Jimmy's voice when we interviewed him about it, was that he gets to the funeral and he gets to Washington. Um, He's come from Dallas where he's written this unbelievable column called Death and Emergency Room 1 where his reporting was so great that you actually felt like you were in the room with the dying president. And once he did something He's zigged when everyone else zagged right, right. because he went to interview the surgeon when everyone right. was doing the conventional story. Right. So yeah. he was always trying to go where everybody else wasn't, not right. follow the pack. So he gets to Washington. Uh, the funeral is going to be you know, coming up, and there's a thousand reporters there. And he says, you know, I can't earn a living here. Like, there's too many other reporters, and they're all there to see, you know— French President de Gaulle coming in for the funeral and the pomp and circumstance. And so he says, I'm going to go and get the grave digger. And and the guy for $3.02 an hour dug this grave. And he writes this sort of brilliant piece that exemplifies what a good reporter should do. Think for themselves. Go off for themselves. Well, John, this was a a classic example of the new journalism, which is to say using the techniques of fiction to write about the truth. And I guess in summing up here, you know, is this kind of journalism, is this kind of newspaper writing, whether it's on paper or not, is it extinct? What do you think about... uh, these kinds of values and, um, you know, the ability of reporters and writers to actually produce this kind of journalism going forward. I don't think it's extinct. Gloria Steinem in our film says, you know, there's been storytelling ever since the cavemen, so right? The ancient, the most ancient yeah. impulse yeah. And, in and, some ways. And so that's, and we have very talented young journalists. And I'm not actually worried about national news. I think the reporting on Trump is a, is a sign that our national news organizations are pretty healthy on a historical continuum right now. But I'm really worried about local news because they haven't figured out a business model to underwrite local reporting. And that's where your pocket gets picked is at the State House or City Hall, as uh, Richard Cohen says, says in the film. And so maybe it'll be a nonprofit uh, model the way uh, Time Magazine's now owned by a billionaire, Washington Post owned by a billionaire, and they're not owning them to make money, you know, so that might be a possible answer, but I'm not sure there are enough rich local guys who want to subsidize, you know, journalism that might criticize their friends at the local level. So we're all sort of sorting that out right now. And also the fact that people have to file and tweet, you know, a dozen times a day, it makes it harder to write a kind of a novelistic, beautifully crafted literary piece of journalism. And so one of the reasons that I really wanted to do this film was to remind people that you can aspire to something better and that you can speak truth to power and do it in a way 
that is written memorably. So we really went to great pains to show their writing in this film. Well, this, this documentary is a great reminder and about two really colorful uh, guys that I think people are going to be just fascinated watching this Monday, January 28th on HBO. John Alter, thanks for uh, joining us again on Skullduggery. Thanks, guys. Thanks, John. We are now joined by the esteemed, fantastically successful Adam McKay, a former chief writer for Saturday Night Live, turned movie director for of such great hits as Anchorman and The Big Short. Adam McKay, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you very much for having me on. Pleasure to be here. Well, congrats on the Oscar nominations, man. Eight. That's pretty amazing. Let's talk about this movie. And I got to say, I uh, I didn't know what to expect when I saw it. And I was blown away by all the characters and details that I remembered from reporting days many years ago. What prompted you to want to make this movie now in the middle of the Trump era? You know, it was just a moment where... I just was reading a book about Cheney and, and I became aware of the fact like, wow, we're about to close the history on Cheney and W. Bush. It was uh, like, there was a moment where you just didn't hear them ever talked about. And then Trump won. And then you started hearing people say, God, I miss W. Bush and Cheney. And I was like, okay, this is getting crazy. And remember when Bush was on like Ellen and was like dancing with Ellen. <laughs> and then there was like a paparazzi from TMZ, like laughing with Dick Cheney. And it started to feel like a scene out of that documentary active killing. Like, like really? Like we're, we're all completely cool with this now. So I just felt like, you know, journalists, like you guys have done amazing work covering all of this. There's tons of great books and articles and interviews, which I've read pretty much all of. But I felt like there really hadn't been a movie. W brushed up against Cheney a little bit. And just the influence this guy had, not to mention his zealot-like presence in the 70s and 80s around American politics and the rise of the Republican Party. I just felt like it would be great to do a movie about this. It's interesting because we sometimes talk about how because of this crazy current presidency with Trump, we grade Trump on a curve. But in a way, it feels like uh, what you're saying is Bush and Cheney have kind of been graded on a curve as well, just because by contrast to Trump, they seem normal. But one of the things that really struck me about this movie, you know, when reporters like Mike and myself see movies about stories that we've covered really closely, almost always they just ring falsely. It just doesn't quite sound right. And, you know, you sort of lacks the verisimilitude and the subtlety and nuances. And this is one of those rare movies where, for me, it really brought me back to that time. And it was, in a lot of ways, exactly right. I think, Mike, you had the same reaction. What I wanted to know, because it's a complex, layered movie, because Cheney's a complex character, is ultimately, if you had to say in a single sentence, what drove Dick Cheney, what would you say that was? That's the question. I mean, that's the question everyone has. You know, some people theorize, oh, the heart attacks changed him. Certainly 9-11 had an impact on him. There's no question about that. We have that scene in our movie where he asked for the unfiltered intelligence. That's a big moment. And then you have people with an ideological interpretation, who the Strauss and 
the neocons and the Vulcans <laughs> and isn't an ideological motivation. So we just dug through. Got to say, I haven't thought era. about Leo Strauss in a while, <laughs> probably about ten or fifteen years. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's let's swing this entire podcast just towards the <laughs> podcast. Well, we should have had Wolfowitz um, on there, yeah, right? Yeah. So, okay, keep Crystal going. Too. He's yeah. actually he's in the room with me right now. I'm yeah. Jolski and Wolfowitz right now. Yeah. Um, How about David Addington? You got him because you know he's, he's the guy. Yeah. Yeah, he, and I, he and I hang constantly. So we dug through every like nook and cranny, and really, what I came up with was a, a much more physiological kind of drive for Cheney, which was. And the movie I compared it to was Sid and Nancy by Alex Cox. And from Lynn, really, the first act of the movie is really Lynn's act. I saw a guy who went from ambition and a desire to make his wife and pretty soon his daughters proud to a guy who became addicted to influence and power. And it's, it's an age-old story, but that is really what I found. And the closest to any kind of ideology I discovered isn't really an ideology was the unitary executive theory, which I then saw pop up again and again in his actions and sometimes in his writings, specifically with the minority opinion on the Iran-Contra affair when he met David Addington. So, and I'm not saying our movie is the definitive interpretation, but that was finally my take was, oh, this is a guy who really, honestly, at the end, didn't even care if he was right or wrong, just cared that he was making the decision. You know, I want to stop you right there, because the unitary executive theory, you know, it completely blew me away when you were able to lay that out in the movie, because it's a concept that is pretty important and arguably even more important now that we have a an acolyte of that view of executive power bill barr about to be our new attorney general but we've got um, we've got what was i have to say is my favorite clip from the movie where you explain that in a really ingenious way that i want to play for you and then have you talk about a bit so let's Great. let's play that clip the restaurant scene. But torture and privacy laws weren't the only laws Cheney rewrote with John Yu. They had a full menu of legal opinions stretching and challenging constitutional and international law. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, tonight we're offering the enemy combatant, whereby a person is not a prisoner of war or a criminal, which means, of course, that he has absolutely no protection under the law. We're also offering an extraordinary rendition where suspects are abducted without record on foreign soil and taken to foreign prisons in countries that still torture. Oh, that sounds delicious. We also have Guantanamo Bay, which is very, very complicated, but it does allow you to operate outside the purview of due process on land which isn't technically US territory, but where we still do have control. And also we have a very fresh and delicious War Powers Act interpretation, which gives the executive branch broad powers to attack nations or people who it deems still possibly a threat. We have the fact that under the unitary executive theory, if the president does anything, it must be legal, <laughs> which of course means you can do whatever the fuck you want. So, gentlemen, which would you like? <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll have more. Excellent. <laughs> that is brilliant. Uh, yeah. what, what inspired you to tell the story of the unitary executive in that way? So I had a conversation, once again, amidst all the research, where I talked to a constitutional lawyer, and I had kept coming upon the unitary executive theory. And I asked the lawyer, I said, okay, so they wrote all these legal decisions 
during the W. Bush years, and they were all underpinned by the strong interpretation of unitary executive theory. I go, but they're clearly a giant overreach in executive authority. Are they just gone now? Like, I know that Obama did a statement that they wouldn't be observing some of those opinions from you. And the lawyer told me, oh, no, they're still in the DOJ computers right now. And I said, so anyone can cite them if they want. He goes, absolutely. And I got a chill ran down my arm when I heard that. And I realized that, like, oh, this is the kind of like when you were a kid and you'd get injured and you'd be like, oh, that's going to leave a mark. Like, oh, that left a mark. And then while we were editing the movie, we start seeing Kavanaugh ran through the Supreme Court. And I saw Durbin questioning him about unitary executive. And now, like you guys said, we're looking at the attorney general who's a subscriber to the strong interpretation. And it was crazy during the editing of the movie to see the unitary executive start to become one of the centerpieces of the current events going on around us. Because when yeah. we put in the movie, it was fairly obscure I mean, to I, your, you know, yeah. Yeah. I th- average I th- people like us. I think some of those, John, you legal opinions were withdrawn, like the torture memo. The torture memos And the were, surveillance, and yeah. the, uh, the warrantless uh-huh. wiretapping. But your point surveillance is... Surveillance is still there, I thought, though, right? Well, no? well, but your point is exactly right. The unitary executive and that kind of maximalist position on executive authority is, believe it or not, fairly mainstream conservative legal philosophy. And so I think there's a lot of that in existing right. OLC opinions. But I wanted to ask you... You talked about executive power maybe not really being an ideology, but it really is a core philosophy, if not an ideology. It may not have the same kind of geopolitical implications that, say, the neoconservative ideology has. But this is something that, you know, as the movie shows, Cheney believed in to his core from his earliest days in the government because of the Watergate and Vietnam you know, backlash the, you know, against the imperial presidency. I mean, isn't that really an ideology? It's funny with obviously filmmaking so different than journalism, so different than what you guys do in a lot of ways, goes without saying. So the thing that we got into was this kind of father figure psychology. And if you, you look throughout the movie, there's constantly a feeling of Cheney becoming a father figure, of Lynn having a father who wasn't the best father. And that really harmonizes with that strong, that imperial presidency kind of idea. And and you actually see Dick and Lynn in the movie early on gushing about Nixon. And then when he resigns after Watergate, feeling like, I think she, at one point we even had her say in the movie, that's our nation's father. Maybe that got cut out. But there's a whole kind of thing that we were running through the movie about the father, which fits perfectly with the unitary, the strong interpretation of the unitary executive theory. Can I ask you guys a question? Was this always mainstream? Was this always like the Federalist Society? Was this... Always a mainstream thing. I think it evolved, it evolved over the years. And and I should point out that Bill Barr, far more than Kavanaugh, I think, is a real hardliner on this stuff. In fact, he anticipates David Addington in many ways. His very strong views about executive power and authority were laid out when he was chief of the Office of Legal Counsel back during the uh, first Bush administration. In fact, he right. wrote, in wow. fact, Barr in, yeah. in, in, I think it was 1989, maybe even earlier than that, when he was head of the Office of Legal Counsel, he wrote what was then the infamous Snatch Authority opinion, which right. Isikoff and I both covered, mm-hmm. which basically said that uh, the U.S. government could violate another country's sovereignty to mm-hmm. snatch and extradite or just 
basically kidnap right. someone who they were wanted to arrest and put on trial. And he also argued that the, that uh, the um, the United States could invade another country or get involved in military action. In that case, it was the Persian Gulf War without seeking congressional approval, which is sort of the position John Yu adopted in the very early days after wow. 9-11. That's but, amazing. I didn't know he linked that strongly to it. I knew he was a strong adherent, but I, I yeah. didn't know that and he was that much uh, and he part was of the evolution. And he was advising uh, and talking to Addington and all those yeah. characters during the early days of George W. Bush's hey, position. Adam, but you, I wanted you to. Got, you got to make us consultants on your next <laughs> yeah. movie, by the way. Yeah. Just, uh, How about it? Well, you know, we had a bunch of crazy <laughs> moments like that <laughs> on this movie where we just made the movie and then we'd be shooting it or editing it. And at one point, John Bolton, we're talking about how we should cut him out. Uh, there's a little mention of him in a scene. I go, you know, you should cut Bolton out of there. No one really knows who he is anymore. And the very next day, Trump appointed Bolton. <laughs> and this would happen throughout the entire movie. And then one day we were filming and we're doing lunch, uh, pushing the old Gilded Age term, uh, the death tax, uh, onto a focus group. And one of my crew members comes up and he's like, have you seen the new, uh, the Republican tax plan? Look what it does with the, uh, the inheritance tax. And like that, like that day was suddenly like a big part of it that they were going to limit it even more and then get rid of it. And this kept happening during the shooting and the editing of this movie. It was, it was kind of freaky to the point where at one point we even had a little reality show clip just to kind of reflect American culture. And there was a, a, a blonde kind of singer lady talking to P Diddy and a friend of mine in the edit room goes, you know, that's the lady that, what was it, Donald Trump Jr. had an affair with? And it was crazy. Like, everything was linking to what was happening. You mentioned, Adam, before, you talked about psychology linking father figures and the unitary executive. But there's another really important psychological component here in terms of what was driving Cheney. And I want you to talk about the threat matrix scene. And it's this uh, scene in the movie after 9-11 where I guess they're in the situation room, I think, Cheney is being piped in on video on the civets, and one of the aides there says, well, we're not going to give you all of the intel because a lot of this stuff is, is unvetted, and he kind of darkly says, you know, I want give it all to me. I've always thought that that was as important as anything with Cheney, this kind of apocalyptic vision that he really believed in the dark side, as he referred to it once. Talk about that a little bit. I totally agree. I, I think it's one of the most important scenes in the movie. I think you had a guy who was hard right, who believed in the imperial presidency. There's no question about it. Even during the first Gulf War, at one point, he was caught researching use of tactical nukes. Uh, you know, like, I mean, this guy was always pretty extreme, but it took on a different hue after 9-11. And I read a bunch of different people talking about how when he got that unfiltered intelligence, ordinarily, as you guys know, intelligence would be double-checked, make sure that it's reliable, make sure it's not redundant. And Cheney said, no, no, don't vet any of it. And there was some person, I can't remember who it was, to, to describe that experience of getting unfiltered intelligence every single day as like listening to Led Zeppelin on full volume 24 hours a day yeah. and what that would do. And to it you. created this climate of fear. And I got to tell you this one story because I was reporting on this at the time and I had a source in the FBI who would come in at 4.30 every morning and go through the threat matrix, this massive amount of unvetted, raw intelligence which had all this scary shit in it you know, about possible nuclear attacks and biochemical attacks and all. And, you know, most of it wasn't true. He wanted to 
you know, turn it into something that was more credible and, you know, maybe you know, just a few pages as opposed to 50 pages or whatever it was. And John Ashcroft said, no, you got to give the president and the vice president everything. His interpretation was Ashcroft and it was covering his ass because he wanted to make sure that they didn't take out something that ended up being some horrific terrorist attack. But there was so much pressure to give everything. And then it had to affect, had to create this kind of climate of fear that affected their their policies going forward. And also also this sort of sense that only Cheney, because he knew this stuff, could be the savior and could protect the American people. I don't think there's any question. I mean, was it Richard Clark who talked about the fact that after 9-11, to some degree, they all had PTSD, which I totally understand. But on top of that, to then go that, I mean, I can't even comprehend reading that unfiltered intelligence. Man, I was working in 30 Rock, when, or I think I just left when they had the anthrax mailed there. And I remember talking to people who ran out of the building in tears. I mean, people forget that was going on. Have you guys ever heard the story of the false alarm in the White House where a weird alarm went off and everyone was like, what is that alarm? And Cheney says, that's an alarm for a bio attack. And we're basically all dead right now. And then he calmly went in the room and like contacted a bunch of different people like Colin Powell's like, we've just had a bio attack. We're probably already dead now. And then someone walked in the room and was like, no, no, it was a false alarm. It got triggered. And Cheney, everyone in the room said he, like, his demeanor barely changed. He was like, oh, OK. And just got up and like, walked out of the room. OK, so, Adam, I got I got sort of three critiques, uh, which I want to have you respond to, because I yeah. was impressed by how how meticulous you were to a lot of details. And, you know, like I say, getting in characters like John Yu and David Addington, Cheney's longtime legal advisor, people you'd never expect to see in a Hollywood movie. So the Uber, (laughs) you know, so hats off on that. The Uber critique would be, you know, you pretty much explicitly suggest that Cheney was motivated, driven by a sort of lust for power for power's sake. And it sort of dismisses the idea that the guy actually did believe in stuff, did have a real political agenda, a conservative political agenda that he wanted to promote and that he may have been and was, in fact, wrong about a lot of stuff. He wasn't seeking power simply for the sake of having power. He wanted to advance a particular political agenda. I'd go even further. I'd say I'm not only interpreting Dick Cheney as driven by power for power's sake. I'm even interpreting the Republican Party as driven by power for power's sake. But that I, that I, suggests honestly, that they don't believe in anything. Well, that was I, the, am, I, I to some degree am suggesting that. Yes, what I saw was, and what I've always kind of seen is that you had these kind of the counter-revolutionary moneyed elite after uh, FDR's New Deal who were constantly looking for ways to reestablish political power. You had the Powell Memo, which reactivated a lot of these moneyed people like Richard Mellon Scaife and, and the Coors family and the Cokes in Washington, D.C. And then you had kind of the accident of the civil rights movement, which jettisoned the South to the Republicans at the same time, Roe versus Wade, which uh, gave an opening for uh, the religious folks to go more hard towards the Republicans. And then I just look at what they did from that point on, and it was all to the advantage of this Richard Mellon Scaife, the Cokes, the Coors, on and on, these like wealthy elites. That's honestly what I see. And when you see 
expanded power worldwide, I, I honestly, I don't see like this incredible operating ideology. I mean, there was no real plan for the reconstruction of Iraq. The one thing well, they did was capture true. oil yeah. wells right away. I, I am much more cynical about it. I really am. Right. Well, and actually that montage at the end of the movie, which some people have been critical of, uh, where you see the wildfires. Like, Cheney is responsible for everything that has gone wrong oh, no, with the no, Republican we Party. We weren't saying that. We, <laughs> it was supposed to be the movement, the Reagan Revolution, which, by the way, drifts into the Democratic Party as well. There's no question. The, the big influx of big money that came into D.C. in the late 70s, 80s, there's no question affects the Democrats as well. But what it's supposed to be is Cheney and America and our relationship with government has become so cynical and so uh, we just don't believe the government can do anything, that nothing's being solved anymore, the opioid crisis, shootings. And then, yeah, some of it, like the Syrian refugee crisis, you can directly connect to Cheney. So it's, it's bigger than just the guy at that point. And there's definitely some people that have said, oh, you're saying Cheney did all that. By, by no means are we. But you're saying more broadly the Republican Party and uh, the conservative, because, you know, if you looked at that montage, it's, it's wildfires, which seems to be a symbol of climate change or climate deni- denial. You get a lot of that on Cheney. I, I'd be okay with that. And the Syrian refugee crisis. But Fox News, clearly, Cheney right. had nothing to do with. But they were a major part of the rise of the right wing. And you see that kind of become its most demented, extreme self, the Alex Jones kind of part of uh, right-wing media and Breitbart and all that kind of stuff. So that that's what we were trying to do. We may not have executed it well, because you guys are obviously intelligent, sharp guys. And if you had that feeling about it, I, I don't think you're wrong by any means, but that's what we were trying to say. Okay, two specific points. We were talking before about father figure. You've got the scene in there where uh, Lynn Cheney's mom dies by drowning. Which, in fact, she did. I looked it up today for this interview. She did. I found the obituary. <laughs> but you suggest that her father was responsible for the death of her mother. Um, and I just wondered, because uh, I didn't see that in anything I've ever read, where'd you get that? That's directly from Lynn Cheney's autobiography and from Mary Cheney's autobiography. Both of them depict that death as suspicious. And But do they blame Lynn's father for it? Edna and Wayne had had a nasty argument an hour before she was found dead in that lake, and she didn't swim. She never went in the water. So there's one of two things that happened here. That, And once again, it's not definitive, but clearly something suspicious happened. I've heard some people that have a theory that it was a suicide, which is a possibility. She was quite drunk. There's another possibility that there was foul play, and maybe it was Wayne because it was documented that there was a really nasty argument before. So we don't definitively say it was him, but there's clear, clearly she grew up in a rough household. Her father died of cirrhosis of the liver uh, like 10 years later, I think it was. I'm not exactly sure on that date. But clearly was a hard, hard drinker. It was clearly a tough home. Uh, her mother died under suspicious circumstances. And they did not have an incredibly close relationship with Wayne. So that moment there is when Cheney kind of becomes the father is what that moment's supposed to be. But it's in Lynn Cheney's own words and Mary Cheney's own words, they both, she admits that it was a suspicious death. So okay. that was, yeah. some people have depicted that as being like a wild speculation. It's, it's not. The other one is the one sympathetic 
thing you have about Cheney in the movie is that he was supportive of uh, his daughter Mary uh, when she comes out as a lesbian and uh, is protective of her. But then in the end of the movie, when Liz is running for Congress and is being criticized for not being forceful enough against same-sex marriage. You have Dick, her father, basically giving her the green light to come down strong against same-sex marriage to the detriment of her relationship with Mary. And I just, clearly it's it's true that Liz did do that, but do we know that she took direction or got approval from her father to take that position? Well, there's two sides to that answer. One is that two days after it, the Cheney's Liz and Dick released a statement supporting Liz on it, so we know that they supported her on that decision. I mean, they equivocated a little bit, saying it's a state's rights issue, but basically supported her. So they did back her. Also, from everything I read, Liz is definitely Lynn's daughter, and Lynn has big say and, and over Liz, and they talk a lot about everything, strategizing about everything. They're extremely close. So it's not a stretch to imagine that they would have discussed that with her beforehand. That's not a verified scene, but that's, you know, basically once they wrote that statement two days later, clearly they supported it. And I thought that was just tragic. I, I thought, you know, for a guy, the one thing we know about Dick Cheney was that for his whole life, he valued his family above everything. Well, he did so, all the cooking, all the yeah. shopping. And so... Yes. I just felt like, wow, for this guy to back that in the very end after, you know, he's really given everything away, it felt very tragic personally. So, uh, so Adam, actually, I, w- I wanted to pick up on that theme because one of the metaphors in the movie, which I thought was uh, fascinating and very effective, was Dick Cheney's heart, his live heart, which you see pulsating. It seems to me that you're, one of the things you grapple with in this movie is, does he have a heart? Is he heartless? And there is a sentimental side to him earlier in the movie, but at the end of the day, you know, you were just talking about how he ends in terms of backing you know, Liz Cheney's run and the implications of that for Mary. What's your bottom line? Is he a heartless guy? Does he have a heart? Is he complicated? Or did he just change, maybe because of his heart surgery, and he ends up heartless? Ultimately, I do view the movie as an addiction movie. I do view it like Sid and Nancy is a movie I looked at a few times for this movie. I also watched that Italian movie, uh, Il Divo, was a really great movie, too. A bunch of movies, obviously, were influences. But I do look at it as an addiction movie. And I do look at it that, like, reading the accounts of him when he was in the Ford White House smoking three packs of cigarettes a day and eating a dozen donuts, you can almost feel the rush of just the juice of being in the White House, being that young, the youngest White House chief of staff in history, and just pounding on someone who stupidly smoked for a bunch of years. The idea of smoking three packs of cigarettes a day is just mind-blowing to me, like pounding cigarettes and donuts and the rush of the power. So what we tried to do is just show the wear that it had on his heart the whole time as he changed throughout his entire life. And then in the very end, you see his heart, and the descriptions I read about his heart was that it was twice the size of a normal heart, and it had scars all over it from his multiple heart attacks. And finally, that's kind of the heart that you see that's just been banged around and assaulted and and ripped up by this hunger for power that in a lot of ways came from his love for his, his wife. It's also kind of a love story as well, which is why I looked at Sid and Nancy 
which is both a love story and an addiction story. So it's definitely a little bit more of a, an emotional interpretation of them. And that's definitely what I felt like a film could contribute to the discussion of Dick Cheney. So yeah, that's kind of how I viewed the heart. And then the shot of him without the heart, the, yeah. his actual doctor described the moment when he took the heart out of Cheney's chest. And he said he had a moment where he sat there and looked at it, Cheney, without his heart in his chest. And he said he just had this strange moment where he's looking at it. And I remember reading that. There's an actual book from the doctor and Dick Cheney about Cheney's history with his heart. And, and that just struck me so hard. I was like, oh, that has to be in the movie. Yeah. Well, wow. well, I got to say, Adam, of uh, all the takeaways people have from this movie, I don't think too many of them will look at it as a primarily a love story. <laughs> but uh, it will be remembered for a lot of other aspects to it. And listen, great movie and good luck with the Oscars. We'll all be watching uh, Oscar night. Thank you so much, guys. A huge admirer of, of both your work, and uh, believe me, I, I leaned on a bunch of it for this movie as well as a, a bunch of other great journalists, and thank you for everything you guys do. Thank Thanks you. so much, Adam. Thanks to John Alter and Adam McKay for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at SkullduggeryPod. And now you can watch the podcast on YahooNews.com and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.